our current approach to let's just iterate and see what works takes no responsibility for the outcomes we're creating for society. And we need to be deliberate when we build products, not just because that's the way to build successful products, but because we create change in society, we affect people's lives through our product and that requires embracing responsibility. Welcome to the Human Insight Podcast, where we share with you the business stories, ideas, and trends shaping the future of customer experience, told firsthand by the experts themselves in thought-provoking conversations. Hi, everyone. I'm Janelle Estes, Chief Insights Officer at User Testing. And today, we're very excited to have Radhika Dutt joining us on the Human Insight Podcast. Radhika is an engineer, entrepreneur, and product leader who's participated in four acquisitions, two of which were companies she founded. She's built products in industries including broadcasting, media, advertising technology, government, consumer, robotics, and wine. Thanks so much for joining us today, Radhika, and welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Janelle. I'm excited to be here. So we recently released a new test template uh, within user testing that allows folks to probe into how consumers think about how a process could be improved. Uh, Ridika, as I understand, you founded a company that, among things, gave personalized wine recommendations. And for this insight segment, we used that template to ask our user testing contributors about their wine buying experiences from how they buy wine, their biggest challenge, uh, to if they had a magic wand, what they would change about the experience. So let's watch uh, a little bit of what they said. But I got to admit, I'm a sucker for labels, and I'm more likely to buy a bottle with a pretty label. And I know that sounds crazy, but hey, you know, that's who I am, for better or for worse. What is your biggest challenge you have experienced when buying wine? Sometimes there's just an overwhelming amount of choices and I, I get a little flustered and I don't um, feel like maybe I'm not choosing ones that I'll like, but in my lack of um, knowledge, it's always a gamble. I try to make as educated a guess as I can. Um, I reading the information on the cards there and asking friends, um, but ultimately, there's so many different types of brands, um, and my palate's not that refined yet, um, That and my knowledge is not that deep, that uh, sometimes I can buy some ones that I really don't like. If you had a magic wand, what would you do to improve buying wine? I would have um, wine sent to my house without extra fees and deliveries. Um, I would love an app that I could put in, um, or a website where I could put in these are my favorite bottle of wines and have it suggest other bottle of wines that it thinks that I would like, kind of like a Google or an Amazon experience where you put in everything that you buy and it starts making recommendations. So Radhika, I agree with a lot of the sentiment shared in those uh, video clips. It can be super challenging to find a wine that you like at the price you want to pay, that you're confident you know, it's going to taste the way you want it to taste, but it sounds like there's still a need for, for your business based on what I'm hearing from these, these folks. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I think people are still just as uh, overwhelmed with wine choices. Um, and 
you know, we still continue to pick wines in exactly the same way, which is, you know, looking at attractive looking wine labels or, you know, finding things that are on sale. Yeah. So I would love to talk about these wine kind of insights um, in the sense of like, if you were launching the business today, like relaunching it, right? Um, how would you, how would insights like these impact what you would bring to market? Yeah, so let's talk about these insights in the context of radical product thinking. So, you know, I had my startup, which I sold in 2014, actually. Um, and we were actually setting out to solve exactly some of these problems that uh, these users were sharing. So the point of radical product thinking is that instead of just throwing things in the market and just seeing what sticks, the idea is to start with a really clear vision that's grounded in what's the problem we're setting out to solve. You know, why, uh, why is the current status quo just absolutely unacceptable? And then, you know, how do we envision the world? What does the world look like if we solve this problem? And finally, how will we solve it? Uh, so that's the starting point for a vision. Then in the radical product thinking approach, from this vision, you craft a really clear strategy. Uh, and from that strategy, uh, you arrive at how will you use that for decision making, for execution and measurement? Like, how will you measure success? So the idea with radical product thinking is instead of just trying things in the market, it starts with a clear vision. And then how do you systematically translate that vision into reality? So if I look at these insights, right, how would we use it? The first step is it would inform what is our vision. So if I think about our vision for uh, Likely, that was the name of the wine startup that I had. You know, this was actually our, our vision that I wrote down in the radical product thinking uh, fill in the blank statement. Uh, so that vision would read today when amateur wine drinkers uh, want to find wines that they're likely to like. They have to pick wines based on attractive looking wine bottles or try what's on sale. This is unacceptable because it's hard to learn about wine this way and it leads to so many disappointments. We envision a world where finding wines you like is as easy as buying or renting a movie on Netflix. Uh, we're bringing about this world through a recommendations algorithm that matches wines to your taste. Uh, and an operational setup that delivers these wines to your table. So that was the vision, right? And as you can hear, so much of the consumer insights that we heard are reflected in that vision. So that's the first step. So from there, it would inform your strategy. So, you know, given what consumers are saying are their, uh, are their pain points, so this idea of being overwhelmed, just not knowing uh, how that's going to translate to your taste, what you like or not like based on a description, etc. You know, what would you do with it? Like how, so that those are the pain points. So what does the solution look like? And funny enough, you know, the first thing that we had, our first hypothesis was actually what one of the people uh, in that video just talked about, which was if you just could enter wine that you like, she would like recommendations for what else you might like based on that. So our first uh, product out of the gate was exactly that, which was you enter a wine that you like and we'd give you recommendations. Well, it turned out that, by the way, although people thought that they wanted that, 
This approach gave most people the deer in the headlights feeling. When you have to enter, what is that one wine that you liked? People's reaction generally was, oh my gosh, you know, what would I enter? Uh, what's that one wine I like based on which I want recommendations? And so it turned out not to be the right approach, but that's the point. You have a very clear strategy that's grounded in what's the pain, um, then your solution based on that, a business model that's aligned with it. All of those elements are part, uh, are part of the radical product thinking strategy. And then uh, based on that, you put things in the market, you measure whether it's working or not so that you take a hypothesis driven approach. So this is where, you know, we start with insights, um, but even framing the question, asking those insights, etc., requires, you know, even maybe having some sort of a stake in the ground and then developing your vision based on those insights, developing your strategy based on those insights, and then um, from that, translating it into hypothesis-driven execution and measurement. Yeah, I, I, I love that, that thinking and that approach. It's a very practical kind of way to think about first understanding the problem you're trying to solve and then getting to a place where that drives your strategy and solution. And, you know, um, I feel like we should uh, pour ourselves a glass of wine and talk <laughs> a bit more about... Um, a bit more about this topic, but, you know, maybe before we do that, uh, <laughs> let's uh, back up a bit. And can you tell us a little bit more about yourself, about your company, Radical Product Thinking, and perhaps even what's keeping you up at night? Yeah. So, um, you know, you shared my bio already, but I guess the, the, uh, the twist I'll share on that is, you know, my background in product was this meandering path, right? Where I was an entrepreneur, I had built products and companies uh, that I built products at were then bought because of the products that I built. Um, and that's kind of how I meandered into product management. The thing that I realized though, along, the, along this long meandering path was that, you know, I learned how to build products the hard way. Uh, it was by making mistakes and finding that, you know, there was the same set of product diseases that uh, I had caught or was watching other people catch um, as they were building products. So I'll give you an example. When I started out as an entrepreneur, you know, one of the first product diseases that we ran into was what I now call hero syndrome. Uh, hero syndrome is where we're so focused on going big, scaling, that we forget to really um, focus on what's the problem we're, we're trying to solve. Another super common product disease is pivotitis, right? Which is where we keep pivoting because that's what we've heard we should be doing. Pivot till you find product market fit. And so you keep pivoting and it leads to pivotitis where you have confused customers, really demoralized employees. And so the need that I realized after working, um, you know, for working on building products for so long was how can we build successful products without having to go through the same process of trial and error and hard lessons every time? And that's how radical product thinking was born. Um, it was born out of this hypothesis. You know, is there a way for us to very deliberately 
build successful products systematically, like a recipe for building successful products? Um, or is it that there are just only a few rare individuals, you know, people that we lionize as visionaries, people like Steve Jobs and Elon Musk, and only they're able to build these successful products? Um, and the answer really is that any of us can build successful products. Um, and that's what the Radical Product Thinking book helps us do. Uh, and so you asked me about Radical Product Thinking. So it's a book that is available in bookstores, but it's also um, it's also a set of workshops that I deliver and training to be able to help people apply this approach and build successful products. Great. Yeah, thank you. I love that um, concept of pivotitis. Uh, I'll have to pull that into my <laughs> vernacular for sure. Radical product thinking. So congrats first, congrats on, on publishing the book and, and uh, creating such a successful framework with, with your workshops. Um, it was published last year and um, was recently translated to Japanese. It's been on a ton of summer reading lists as recommended readings. And as one reviewer wrote, quotes in quotations, of course, it had to be written by a woman. <laughs> Why do you think this book and this concept is resonating with, with readers. You know, it makes me so happy to hear that comment. Uh, one of the things that I very deliberately wanted to do in this book is to not share the same old Silicon Valley-centric stories that we've all heard and kind of gotten tired of, right? Um, and I wanted to share a different perspective that I think some of the successes that come out of Silicon Valley don't really share. So. Let's talk about kind of the, the main theme that comes out of the Silicon Valley startups that are successes, the, the unicorns. The theme there is, you know, you just keep pivoting and trying what works and eventually you find this magic of uh, product market fit. It's all about let's just delight customers and, you know, you'll get to where you need to. Um, whereas, you know, if you look at a very different approach, which is, Thinking about your product as a mechanism for change and then being deliberate about how do you create that change, I wanted to share this perspective and from a global lens where, you know, there are organizations around the world that aren't funded by some war chest uh, where they could just have the funding to, oh, let's just try a zillion things and see what works, but instead have to be really careful with how they use their capital. They have to be deliberate um, and find you know, what, find how to create that change that they envision very deliberately. And so those are the examples from around the world that I wanted to share. And it gives us such a different picture of what it means to be a visionary. So I was really happy to provide this, um, this, this book that provides much deeper insights than just what comes out of Silicon Valley as kind of the rubber stamped approach that this is what we do and how we create uh, successful products. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. You know, as someone, I'm actually not based in Silicon Valley, um, but my company is, and I, I'm actually in the Boston area, Northeast. And I remember when I first joined user testing eight years ago, flying out to go, go to the company headquarters and surrounded by all these tech companies, you know, you drive down the freeway and you're seeing all these, it's almost like it's almost like ho like Hollywood in LA. Like you go there and you're like, oh my gosh, so many celebrities if you happen to see them. But it's actually, you go to Silicon Valley and you're like, oh my gosh, so many companies. I know these names and brands, but like they actually exist in real life and here are their headquarters. And it's just sort of like that sort of, 
I had stars in my eyes type of thing. But it was also really telling for me that it's just like this, it's a place that is very unique and it doesn't operate the way the rest of the world operates. And so when you think about these Silicon Valley approaches, right, and, you know, the Elon Musks and, you know, the Ubers of the world, not every company has is set up like that. Not every company is able to um, follow those protocols. And so I think what I love about your approach is that you're making this sort of like leveling the playing field a little bit to say, you know, here's here's how to think about it if you just so happen to work at a company that might need to rethink how they build product. Right. And, you know, it's it's a very necessary leveling of the playing field because what actually happens is, you know, you mentioned all these companies that you've heard of, that you see in Silicon Valley. And so we have the starstruck approach, right? Um, well, the reality is it's more that there's the survivor bias. So these are the famous companies and the unicorns that survived. And we think that that's the approach that brings success as opposed to realizing that, well, these survived all those pivots that they went through. Um, if we look at reality, what happens is every company, and I don't care how much funding you really have, every company has two to three pivots before you run out of either money or momentum. You know, by the time you're on your third pivot, you start to lose employees because people are like, seriously, these people have no idea what, what they're doing. I have to go find myself something else to do. Or you just get demoralized, right? There are lots of options where these people can be working. So no matter how much money you have, you really have two to three pivots, and which means that you have to think about these pivots as silver bullets. You have to use them really carefully. Uh, and that's what radical product thinking helps you do. It levels that playing field so that it's not the survivor bias approach that we take, but rather, you know, gives you a structure for how do you keep people aligned? How do you avoid pivotitis? And how do you translate that vision into reality systematically? And by the way, sorry, one other thing I want to share. You mentioned what keeps you up at night. And the examples that you were talking about were, you know, ones like Uber and uh, Elon Musk. That's what keeps me up at night. <laughs> I find that a lot of the philosophy we have in product today is actually really toxic. Uh, that, you know, we believe that we can just put products out there and it'll just magically create the right sort of uh, changes in society. That society magically will make progress towards being better by just trying what works in the market and optimizing for financial success. In reality, you know, we need to start thinking about our role in product kind of like a doctor, where a doctor looks at a patient's problem and they say, you know, I see that you have this disease. I am going to recommend this medicine so that you get better. Well, in product, we're doing something similar. We say, you know, I see you are a patient as a user. You have this problem and I'm recommending this pill that I've made for you. We can't then turn around and say, you know, whatever happens to you after you take this, well, you know, good luck and Godspeed. Like, you know, we, we have to take responsibility for what we do. And that's what keeps me up at night. Our current approach to let's just iterate and see what works takes no responsibility for the outcomes we're creating for society. And we need to be deliberate when we build products, not just because that's the way to build successful products, but because we 
create change in society, we affect people's lives through our product, and that requires embracing responsibility. Absolutely. I, I wholeheartedly agree with um, that perspective that you just shared. I want to um, ask you a little bit about uh, kind of switching gears here. Um, I, you know, th- I, I believe you have the viewpoint that um, iterative product design is potentially a bad thing. I'd love for you to uh, elaborate a bit on that and, and help me understand why. Yeah, it's a little more nuanced than that. I don't say iteration is bad per se. So I look at it um, as having a fast car. Being good at iteration and being good at, you know, lean and agile, it's like having a Ferrari or a McLaren. And by all means, I think that's wonderful to have that sort of a fast car. It helps us get to where we want to faster. But the way I like to describe it is, you can only really use your fast car when you know where you're going. If you're driving in fog, it doesn't matter how fast your car is. You're not going to get to where you need to any faster. And that's what happens. When we have lean and agile, we often use them, you know, we often over rely on them to the point where we just iterate without thinking about what's that destination we want to get to. We often use customer feedback as, you know, let's just ask customers what they want. Whereas, you know, I like to describe customer feedback in these insights as stopping and asking for directions to see if we're going in the right, uh, if we're going the right way to get to our destination. But whether you're getting into your fast car or stopping by the side of the road to ask someone for directions, the most important thing is that you need to know where you want to go. Nobody can tell you where you need to go and you can't get there any faster with your fast car unless you have this clear vision and strategy. I love that. It almost like if I could maybe summarize it, it almost feels like it doesn't matter. You can iterate all you want, but if you're not iterating based on customer feedback within a strong strategy that may already be defined, then it doesn't matter if you're, you know, exactly. You can iterate to your heart's content, but if it's not being informed by customer feedback and, uh, you know, the, the company's overall strategy, it, do- it doesn't matter. Exactly. And then what happens is we keep making small iterations where we're optimizing uh, for, we're really optimizing the status quo to improve for or optimize for profitability, revenues, time spent on site, whatever the metric is that you care about at that particular moment in time. So we make these small optimizations and you know, we continue to build small features and, and make small changes, but it doesn't really move the, the needle in terms of building a transformative product. And that's one of the mm-hmm. challenges with over-relying on iteration. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love it. Um, it's sort of like, I always say, if you look at some of those product management frameworks, there's one, the, the double diamond. I don't know if you're familiar yes. with that one. Um, but this idea of building the right thing versus building the thing right. It's sort of like you can over-index on building the thing right, but if it's not the right thing in general, like doesn't matter. It can be the most perfect, beautiful, easy-to-use experience, but if people don't want it, then what's the point? Exactly. Yeah. So one reason um, for agile and, and iteration and, and sort of what, what we're talking about here is is about managing risk. 
Um, so in, in your opinion, how, how can product leaders or product team leaders um, best mitigate risk in developing products beyond just that iterative feedback that we just talked about? Yeah, to me, you know, we often think that lean and agile mitigates risk in the sense that, yes, it does help because you have shorter cycles of development. And in that way, it does uh, mitigate risk. But where it does not mitigate risk is, you know, figuring out, are you building the right thing? Like even what informs your first iteration? Like what are you actually going to try out in the market? If you're not trying the right things, you're never going to find the right answers. And so to uh, mitigate risk, in addition to lean and agile, there's some pre-work that's needed. And that's where you have to start with this clarity of vision where, you know, until now, we've always learned that a good vision is this broad statement where it's, you know, something like we want to be the leader in data storage, right? And I find those visions completely useless. There's one vision that I often use as an example, which is helping society make progress by empowering users to express themselves. It sounds grand. It's exactly the kind of vision that we think is a good vision. The problem with it is when you say this, anything goes under that vision. So I'll give you an example. My kids have a piano teacher. She is empowering my kids to express themselves and uh, thereby helping humanity make progress, right? So it could be her vision. Uh, but this could also be the vision of a social media company or a company that makes stickers. I mean, pretty much anything goes. So this vision is useless. What you need is a detailed vision, the kind that you know I talked about. And that's why the fill-in-the-blank statement and the radical product thinking approach. That's the first step to mitigating risk, defining the problem and saying, what's the solution? Then you have the strategy where you say, well, you know, here's our hypothesis in terms of what are the pain points? What's our solution? Uh, what's the engine that helps us deliver on that? And finally, what's our pricing model, our... Um, a pr approach for providing training and support, all of these things that are kind of left off um, and, and added on, added on uh, afterwards, right? So all of these elements help you mitigate risk because you know what you're going to try out. Then you can use Lean and Agile for hypothesis-driven execution, uh, meaning that, you know, it's kind of like doing algebra altogether, where you your math teacher always said, you know, you have to show your work, right? So this, having this vision and strategy allows you to show your work and say, this is the hypothesis I have. Your lean and agile execution then allows you to measure whether it's working or not. And let's say it's not working. You can then go back to your strategy and say, okay, here's what we realized was not working. And so this is going to inform our next iteration. And that's how we can mitigate risk by making all of your work uh, very traceable. You can show your work and then you can troubleshoot afterwards. That makes a lot of sense to me. Um, but I know many product teams, uh, it's challenging to, to follow that approach. Um, and actually, we, we talked to some, some product leaders. We got some feedback from, from folks around the world asking them uh, you know, to share their thoughts about the challenges with lean and agile product development. Uh, and, and here's what they said. In your experience, what are the challenges with lean and agile development approaches to product development? <laughs> 
Um, I think the biggest challenge is the business stakeholders often take lean and agile and take it to an extreme and view it as a way to make a lot of last minute changes or changes that haven't been thought out well. So we would have a product or a feature that has been heavily discussed in the planning period and went through some iterations, but then have very last minute changes or uh, counterproductive changes that are always immediate, that requires immediate attention, and that is counterproductive to the release. Mostly because if you're doing lean and agile, you want to be able to shift and rotate priorities based on the needs that are coming up. The bad thing is some things get pushed farther and farther. If you're working a product um, that has multiple people, um, you know, one may go, hey, this is urgent and go, yeah, cool. That needs to get fixed first. But the second, third, fourth things that are requested by other customers may get pushed down the line um, and they may be OK for now, but they do need to get brought back up in the priority at some point. Um, the challenges I see a lot with lean and agile is that those priorities never come back up for those other items. It's always just critical item that needs to be fixed, critical item that needs to be fixed. Um, and none of that other development occurs. So that's really the big thing that I see. I would say the biggest challenges with those are resources. Um, agile is perfect when your team is fully staffed and you actually have a bunch of individual or developers on your team that can work on things. Um, but one of the biggest challenges is that if you don't have that or you're short-staffed, it kind of makes it hard for you to be flexible. Um, the point of Agile is to try to um, – what's the word? Um, the point of Agile is to make yourself uh, adaptable, right? So in case things come up or things don't work the way we, we thought, we scrap them, move on to something else in a reasonable, in a reasonable time frame. Um, so to me – the biggest challenge is making sure you have enough resources to do the work and to have those discussions. So overall, it sounds like they agree with you about the challenges with lean and agile. And what are your thoughts after listening to that? I think the thing that really um, stands out for me is this focus on, you know, always working on what is immediate, critical, uh, and urgent, right? Uh, so, one of the people in that video is saying, you know, we keep shifting our priorities so that we keep working on what's urgent. This is one of the problems with over-relying on iteration, where, you know, we continue to work on what bubbles to the top. One of the frameworks that we use for deciding what we're going to work on in that sprint is uh, the value or the impact that we're going to deliver versus the effort that it takes. So what ends up happening is we always keep focusing on stuff that is less effort and more value. Uh, and it always means that we keep working on small things that are urgent and what's what's needed, which is exactly what these um, users of Lean and Agile were talking about. So in the radical product thinking way, the way uh, we make decisions, it's on a two by two axis. So you think about your vision as your y-axis and survival as your x-axis. So we've talked about what is a good vision, right? It's this problem that you're solving. And so something that's truly helping you make a dent towards solving that is a good vision fit. So it ranks high on the vision. And something, and your x-axis is survival, meaning you think about what's your biggest risk to your product. So if you're a startup, your biggest risk is financial. If you run out of money, then you know your product dies. Uh, if you're in a bigger company, maybe you have 
all the money you need, uh, but let's say your stakeholders don't approve of what you're doing, well, that's going to make you lose your job and, and so you don't make progress towards your vision, right? So we think about vision versus survival. And the way to think about then what would you work on is, well, it leads to four quadrants. The ideal quadrant is what's good for vision and is helping you survive, right? Uh, but if we always focus on ideal, then we're being myopic and always short-term driven. So in a sprint, you also have to think about how often are you investing in the vision? So that's basically where, you know, it's good for the vision and it doesn't always help you survive in the short term. So think about refactoring code for three months, right? It's not helping, it's definitely good for your vision, but it's not helping you release features that are maybe revenue generating for those three months. So that's investing in the vision. And the opposite of that is when you take on vision debt. So that's where it's good for survival, uh, but it's not good for your vision. So when you think about, you know, a custom feature that your customer is asking for uh, and your salesperson says, you know, we'll win this mega deal if we just do this one feature. We've all heard that, right, as product people. And so that's taking on vision debt, which, by the way, is like technical debt, but it's even harder to pay back because you cannot fire your customers, right? Um, and so if you keep accumulating vision debt, then you catch obsessive sales disorder. So one of the solutions or one of the things that I find really helpful when we're using Lean and Agile is to use this approach of vision versus survival when we're prioritizing things for a sprint. Talk about, you know, what features fall in the ideal category? And maybe you'll pick a few of those. Think about, you know, how often are you investing in the vision? If you're not, maybe, you know, if you're, for example, solving some technical debt, that's investing in the vision. So think about how much effort are you going to spend on investing in the vision? And then you try to avoid the vision debt, which is, you know, you try to say, well, maybe occasionally you'll take on vision debt because it's so critical for survival. Uh, but you try to avoid it as much as possible. So there are no right answers, but it gives a framework for how do we avoid some of those problems that these users were talking about in Lean and Agile. Yeah, I love that, that kind of thinking of the two by two or thinking about that those decisions on a matrix. And yes, I absolutely have heard uh, <laughs> those requests from the sales team about particular features that will, that will help close a mega deal. Um, so you were talking a little bit about two uh, syndromes when it comes to, or, or diseases when it comes to sort of product strategy and development, the hero syndrome and pivotitis. Can you recap what are the, what are the other five ones? I'm, I'm so intrigued by, by these. So there's, uh, aside from hero syndrome, pivotitis, there's obsessive sales disorder, which I was talking about, um, <laughs> which we, we've all seen, right, in some form or the other. <laughs> Uh, then there is narcissist complex, which is where we focus on what we think the customer needs or focus on our own goals um, to the point that we forget about what the customer needs. And I'll give you the worst example of narcissist complex was an executive of a group of hospitals was saying, you know, for us to be successful, we need our patients to come back often. <laughs> Right, exactly. Like when we meditate on that, we realize kind of what it means for patients, right? Um, so that's narcissist complex. Then there is locked in syndrome, which is kind of the opposite of pivotitis, but it's more like, you know, being trapped in your success from the past. Uh, whatever has worked in the past, like really 
why change what's not broken, right? Um, and then there's strategic swelling, which is where our product just continues to grow and grow and grow to the point where it could do anything for anyone, just even make coffee if you just ask it nicely. Um, and one last disease that I often come across is hypermetricemia, which is where we are completely obsessed with measurement, right? And we continue to measure and optimize without really thinking about whether those are even the right metrics uh, to be measuring and optimizing for. Oh, I so can relate to uh, some of those things you just described. It's great. Um, I love how you've captured them with really nice labels as well. Um, One of my goals in capturing with a name, by the way, is because, you know, when I talk about this need for radical product thinking and starting with a vision and, and doing things a little differently from how we've traditionally done it, the question that comes up is, well, what's the problem that we're trying to solve, right? And when we talk about these diseases that we can really relate to, that we can identify in organizations, then it becomes easier to say, here's the problem. And that's why we need to take this new approach to solve that problem. So it's kind of recursive in that it's radical product thinking applied to itself, that if you want to create change in your organization, start by defining the problem. That's great. Um, so before we move into our lightning round, I mean, this has been a, a fascinating conversation around your experiences, how you approach this, what you've observed, your learnings, and, and ultimately this idea of radical product thinking. And um, my understanding is that there's three pillars of radical product thinking. I was wondering if you could just kind of boil those down for us. Um, what are those three pillars? So the first pillar is that your product is your constantly improving mechanism for creating the change you envision in the world. It's a fundamentally new definition of product, right? Because we've always thought about product as hardware, software, a thing, basically. And we've thought about this thing as the end goal in itself. But really, the, f the first thing is we need to rethink our product altogether, where our product is not the end goal, it's our mechanism for creating change. And when we start thinking about product in this way, anything becomes a product. We're all product managers in this world, right? So for example, whether you're a freelance uh, designer, uh, you're a researcher, um, you're working in a high-tech company, you're creating a government policy, all of these uh, are roles in which you're creating change. So you have to envision change and you're building a product to create that change. So that's the first pillar. The second is, you know, if your product is a mechanism for creating change, then before you start building your product, you have to have a clear vision for what's the change you want to bring. Because your product is going to be meaningless unless you first thought about what is that change and then you can build your product. And the third pillar is that you can engineer that change very systematically. It's not just about trying things and seeing what sticks. It's really about envisioning that change and very systematically uh, translating that into reality. And all of these product diseases that I just mentioned earlier, you know, those are diseases that creep in whenever there's a break in the chain from translating your vision into strategy, into priorities and execution. Whenever you have a break, that's where these product diseases crop up. And so we can engineer the change we want very systematically and avoid product diseases by taking this approach. Great. Yeah, I, I, I 
think those three pillars really, really resonate with, with me personally. And I, I know a lot of our listeners are going to find value in hearing you break it down that way. Um, so we're going to move into the lightning round. So these are a series of questions that we ask every guest that comes on the podcast. Um, so looking forward to your responses. Um, what's a book that you've recently read that you'd recommend to listeners? Uh, so I'm going to recommend three books. Um, and, and the reason is, you know, I find that a lot of the product people I talk to, you know, the recommendations that they get are typically, you know, product related books. And I find that for us to be good product people, we need to kind of broaden uh, what we read into something that really helps us see how we're affecting the world. So the first book that I'd recommend is Invisible Women. It really helps us think about how we build products and how it affects different people very differently so that we can be more thoughtful in how we build products. The second is um, How Democracy Dies. Uh, this book really describes how um, our society is being eroded by polarization, inequality, etc. Um, and I find it to be such a powerful read because we have to build products thinking about how it affects democracy. And the third one is a book uh, written by Edward Snowden, and it's called Permanent Record. And it really explains this concept of why privacy is important. I get so irked by people saying, well, you know, there's no privacy anymore and I have nothing to hide. So uh, everything is just out there. In that case, I can only say, you know, then just you should make all of your emails public, right? <laughs> we all need privacy uh, and privacy can't be just for the people who need it, like journalists and activists. Either we all have privacy or, we, or, or there is no privacy. So privacy is a responsibility. And this book really explains why that's the case. And my recommendation is after you've read these three books, you probably need a stiff drink afterwards. <laughs> but, but it really gives us a picture of the world that's so important for us to carry as product people. Yeah, absolutely. I need to check out all three of those. The Invisible Women uh, one is resonating with me, though. I just looked it up on Amazon, and I, I hadn't heard of this one yet. I, I, and you're right. I'm definitely going to need a <laughs> stiff drink after I read that. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, it's funny. Sometimes um, there are teams that don't believe that customer feedback is important or necessary. You may have run into those types of teams before. So um, what's a piece of advice that you might give someone trying to convince others to invest in customer feedback? You know, I think there's this myth that came out of something Steve Jobs said, which is, you know, you have to know what customers want. Uh, you can't ask them what they want. You just have to give it to them, right? Or something like that. And people have taken that to mean, oh, you know, we shouldn't ask customers for feedback. And to that, you know, I can only say that really Steve Jobs and all of Apple did so much user research so it wasn't necessarily just customer feedback. Like they have labs where they do a ton of research. Uh, and, and that's what informs this understanding of what is the problem that they need to solve in the world. And then, you know, building a product that goes and solves that. Um, so it's absolutely not true that customer feedback is not important. I think what questions do you ask even to get that customer feedback, what questions do you ask in your research has to be uh, driven by some ideas that you have. Uh, and so, you know, I'd say formulate those ideas, 
create a, a plan for what do you want to know and then go do it. You really need that to be able to build a product. Yeah, absolutely. Not And really understanding the customer's world, right? And the problem space before bringing something to market. And, you know, I've, I've heard that too. You also hear sort of this um, belief that, you know, those teams never got customer feedback or didn't do any research, right? And I, I'm not one to, to speak on that, but I, I will say I find um, another company fascinating around um, this whole idea of um, understanding your customers and not not asking them what they want. So Jeff Bezos has a famous quote that's like, it's about the Amazon Alexa. Uh, yeah, the Amazon Alexa. And he said, you know, if you would have asked people, uh, do you want a speaker that is in the shape of a Pringles can that sits on your counter that you can talk to? Most people aren't going to jump up and down and say yes, at least at the time, right? And it's sort of like, there's a reason why they, they didn't just build that product out of nothing. They built it because they understood a core problem or set of problems that their customers had. And, um, you know, you can tell by the success of that product that it was the right solution to bring to market. But, um, yeah, I think there's, there's, um, there's so much customer understanding that need, that's required in order to build something as successful and innovative as things like the iPhone or, you know, even the Alexa. Exactly. But I think it goes to the point that you can never ask a user, do you want blah product, right? And, and that's <laughs> yes. the key to user research, that you really want to get at the problem space, as you described, and not, you know, would you want this solution? Right. And that's often the mistake. Would you that, buy this? Exactly. We never ask hypothetical questions. That's kind of the, mm -mm. the, the fundamental starting point. You never ask a hypothetical question in a user interview. Absolutely. Um, when you think about the future of product development, what are you most excited about? What I'm excited about is we have tools to be able to build great products and it's becoming easier to build great products. But that also worries me in that, you know, we need to be able, we need to think differently about how we build products. So, my hope for our future and how we build products is that we use all these wonderful technologies and new tools for building products faster. Um, and we combine that uh, with a sense of responsibility for our users and the change we create in society. And we build products thoughtfully uh, to create a world that works for all. I love that. You know, we can have all the tools in the world, right? But we need to have a really strong strategic customer driven focus around how that's uh, a it's a great point and something uh i'm excited about that too well radica thank you so much for joining us today um, this was incredibly valuable really enjoyed the conversation and uh you know would love to uh get more resources out to our listeners around your framework and your book so where where can they get more information from you our listeners can start by looking at the Radical Product Thinking website. It's um, it's where I have a free toolkit for Radical Product Thinking, where you can find the vision statement, strategy, etc. Uh, you can also learn about all the trainings that you can get for your team from the website. Um, the second thing is the book, which is Radical Product Thinking, The New Mindset for Innovating Smarter. It's on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, anywhere books are sold. And then 
Um, the last thing is I always love to hear from people in on just how they're creating change in the world. So please feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn um, and I'd love to hear your story and what inspired you. Amazing. Thanks so much, Radhika. Thanks so much for having me. This was so much fun. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. If you liked it, please share it with a friend or coworker. If you think it could have been better, let us know. Email us at podcast at usertesting.com. Thanks.